Welcome to Portico. We're glad to have you with us. My name is Rick, and I'm the campus pastor here. We're moving into a new series this summer, and we're looking at the great paradoxes out of Scripture, because our lives are governed and influenced by paradoxes, things that we think to be true that just don't work out to be true much of the time when we live them out in day-to-day living. There's some of the ones that I was looking into that, that kind of drive us are every time that I learn something, when you learn more information, what happens? You realize there's so much more you don't know, right? <laughs> every, time you, every time you become more wise, you discover that there's so much more that you really didn't understand to be true. So in that sense, wisdom actually makes us understand how less wise we are. The more options that a person has, the less satisfied they are with what they've chosen. Think about when you're choosing a smartphone. What happens when you go into that, that store, if you go into Wireless Wave or you go into the Bella Rogers store and you see them all lined up across for you? It used to be you had one option for a phone, right? It sat there and it dialed and you could choose. Well, I mean, you had options. You could get the black one or the gray one or the beige one. But now you go in and the, the phone back on your color has more options, let alone the kind of phone that you're going to use. And you think, do I want the compatibility and the reliability that I get in an iPhone? or do I want the options that I can get with an Android phone or the speed and the brightness and the clarity of a Samsung. And These are all multi-hundred dollar machines, computers that we hold in our pockets and we're disappointed with the one that we choose because it's lacking something that another option has for us. Right? We're disappointed in the computer that we carry around that used to just be a phone that sat on our table and if we really wanted to walk to the back, we'd have to get one of those long cords. You remember that? And you could walk. Yeah, that was, when, that was like the real mobile phone, the, the first mobile phone you just carried it around. We're disappointed when we have fewer options What about in human relationships? We learned that the thing that attracts us is often the opposite to what we are, right? That's the old axiom that opposites attract. And the harder we draw, the harder we try to draw somebody close to us, the further we end up pushing them away. That's one of the great paradoxes of life that the way to foster good relationship is to allow for freedom and to keep your hands off. And then the more that we seek personal freedom, the more captive we become to our desires. Think about this. If, if we feel that getting our own way is possible and beneficial, sometimes it becomes our sole focus to always getting our own way. So getting our own way is, in fact, not freeing, but it entraps us. We live in a day and age where the only things that seem to be necessary are things that are completely unnecessary. That We feel like I couldn't live. How many have you ever said, I couldn't live without air conditioning? In the last, right? We, we said that. I couldn't survive without air conditioning. Yes, we can. But we feel that it's a necessity. Like, my phone fell in the bathtub or in the lake. I'm completely off the grid for the next four days, right? That, that's what we think. When our phone goes down, we're completely messed over. But the greatest necessities in our life are often some of the things that are most unnecessary for life. What about anyone? Does anyone else have a favorite paradox that they have? I had one that I came up with on my own. It was the Twinkie. And if you know my spoke, how does that thing exist for 30 years on a shelf, but you eat one of those things and in about 30 minutes, it's totally processed through your stomach, right? Yeah, you felt that, right? How, how does it have a shelf life of 30 years, but a belly life of 30 minutes? Or that I was uh, researching another one. What would happen if Pinocchio told you that his nose was going to grow? Would it actually grow? It's a deep thought, right? Think that one through. <laughs> This summer, we're going to go through some of the Bible's greatest 
paradoxes. That, and we are, we're going to discover that the Christian life doesn't line up with conventional wisdom. Jesus is 100% God. He's God's son. He's a spiritual being. Yet at the same time, just like Leslie spoke to and taught us this morning, it would, him being God wouldn't have mattered for us if he didn't become 100% human and pay the price for human sin. So he's 100% God and 100% human being. That doesn't make sense because that's more than 100%, and you can't have more than 100%. So how does that work? And you don't want to miss next week when we look at how do we live a life that is completely rooted in this world and living rubbing shoulders with everybody, yet not become a citizen of this world, but become a citizen of heaven. How do we be in the world, but not of the world, balancing a life that is separate, yet the same close enough to rub shoulders with people who need Jesus. We're going to grasp these concepts and look at the paradoxes that become key to living good faith lives. We get caught up trying to please God and trying to know God in a way that he never designed for us to experience relationship with him. We're going to find out that to live is actually to die. And what makes us strong is our weakness. We're going to look at all these things this summer. We're going to start this morning off with a foundational teaching for understanding your faith. And it's in Matthew 19. And it says, but many, it's Matthew 19, 30. You'll see it on the screen. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. I was at a wedding reception last month and they were calling us up table by table because for some reason at a wedding reception, they feel like you can't manage yourself at the buffet line. They need to manage you table by table. Have you ever noticed that's the only place where they only allow six people to the buffet? Everywhere else you can have 20. No, at a wedding, you have to make five people up table by table. And you know, you've been standing around for hours in between the service and the reception and you've been smelling the food that's been prepared for you. At this particular reception, they had done a pig roast. And we had seen the pig roast happening. We had smelled the pig roast happening. We had watched them bring the pig over. And if you're a vegetarian, I apologize. But it was really neat to watch all that stuff happening. And then they start to call table by table. And there was 20-some-odd tables. And they were, they were going number one and 22, and number two and 21, and number three and 20. And we were dead smack in the middle. And I knew right from the get-go our table was going to be last. And we watched people walk back. And they not only had the pork, but they had salmon, and they had pasta, and they had roasted vegetables. And we had... We had been there for four hours already and not eaten, and I'm smelling this, and people are giving speeches, and some, the, the, the uncle was telling stories that I had no idea what it was about, and it's, it's just going on and on and on, and I felt I'm last, and I sure don't feel like I'm first. And, and could you imagine if we were last for dinner and dessert? For dessert, they mixed it up a little bit. So we, at a buffet, the last are not first, are they? The last feel like losers. Even... Even if you attend an event where there's no assigned seating and you arrive and what's left, there's like single seats or you have to sit behind the pole kind of like where Andre is now. Like it's like, maybe he arrived last this morning. No, I don't know. But you know, when, when you get to a, a place where, where there's only the worst seats left and you come last and you've been left those seats, you definitely don't feel like you're first. You don't feel like the greatest. So when Jesus says, many who are last will indeed be first, that should cause us some intrigue. That should cause us to go, what's going on here? 
And he prefaces this statement with a story like he often did. And he's teaching us about what it means to be first and last. And if you want to borrow a copy of the Bible, just quickly put up your hand and Derek will make sure you get a copy to borrow. We're going to keep our Bibles open to Matthew 19. And if you have your smartphone or your iPad, just you can um, follow along. Just search for Milton or Portico and it'll come up there. But we're, we're going to want our Bibles open this morning because we're going to be rooted right around Matthew 19. And it's Matthew 19, 23 through 27. So I'll give you a second to turn there and then I'll read it for you. Matthew 19. Stay in, there we go. 23 through 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and they asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Just hold your Bibles there. A little background to this passage is required for us to understand it in our context. In Jewish theology, they felt that anyone who was wealthy... That was a person who was obedient to God. They felt that if God had allowed them to gain wealth, they must be doing something right and honoring God because he wouldn't allow great wealth unless they were obedient. So people in that day and age assumed that anyone who was wealthy had been already pre-validated by God, meaning their entrance to heaven would probably be rubber stamped there on their way through. So when Jesus looks at his followers and looks at the people he's teaching and he says, it's extremely hard for a rich person to get to heaven, then they start questioning this. They go, well, then who's worthy to get to heaven? If the people that we already assume are good enough to get to heaven aren't worthy to get to heaven or they're going to have a difficult time, how, are, how is anybody going to get to heaven? Now, if you go back in Matthew 19, go to the first part of that chapter. If you look at it, he's telling a story about who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. And look at it there. He's, this is the time when he says, let the kids come to me. I want to show you how much I honor kids because the kingdom of heaven belongs to kids who don't come with any expectations, who don't come with any accolades, don't come with wealth. That's who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. And in this chapter and in this portion, and for us it's a, broken down into chapters, but we know that the Bible was lived out in real life. It wasn't broken into chapters. During this time, Jesus starts messing with the disciples' theology of who God is impressed with and what grants us entry into heaven. He wasn't literally saying rich people can't get to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's challenging the idea of what earns us salvation or what displays God's favor. See, we have this little scale in our own minds and our own existence of what things are heaven-worthy what lives are worthy of heaven and what things aren't. So we created a little chart this week, and we want to say it's a who makes the cut chart. And and, uh, Christina, our graphics person, created it for us. Now we know that somewhere towards the top of the chart is somebody like Mother Teresa, and we know that that she's going to be up there, right? (laughs) Nobody's going to question, well, with her life, all the great things she did, the time that she spent um, living amongst people that desperately needed that desperately needed physical need, that needed emotional need, that needed spiritual need, we feel that she's definitely at the top of the heaven chart. And then we have somebody who enacted great evil on the world, like Hitler. We think, no, he's probably as far away from heaven, close to hell, that we can get. We know that we're not anyone's judge. 
of, of, of character and salvation, but we would feel if we were making a chart that this is probably the two ends of the spectrum. Now, and then we just throw some other names out there for fun. What about Oprah? Where would you put Oprah on your chart? Now, we don't have, I mean, I, th- I think, no, we, that's right, we don't have her up there. But where would you put, <laughs> no, that's not Oprah. <laughs> where, where would you put Pastor Jeff on, on your chart? Would he be at the top or would he, he's back from sabbatical this week if you want to bug him, give him a call, give him, a, give him an email, he's back. So we're just messing with him this week. But what about, what about somebody like Oprah who does a lot of good works, who speaks a lot of things that, Ah, you know, she's doing good for people. She's doing good for, for people that are in need, but maybe we don't necessarily feel that some of her theology lines up with, with what the Bible would say. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. You can create your own chart there. What about, what about somebody like, like potentially the next leader of our nation, Justin Trudeau? We see a lot of advertising about him. We say, he's not ready. And is he, if he's not, no, I'm not, I'm not pushing either side here. I said, potentially the next leader. Other people are saying, he's not ready. We don't know if he's ready to lead the country. Where would we put him in terms of heaven and hell? What kind of scale would he be on? Would he be ready if he had to meet his maker? What about a kid like Justin Bieber? A kid who we hear, he, he grew up in the church. He's definitely gone through some real difficult things in, in his life. We hear now maybe he's going to church and he's connected with the Hillsong group that are in New York there. Where would he be on that chart? Where would you put yourself on that chart? Would you be... Right there in the middle with Pastor Jeff, would you, would you be at the top with Mother Teresa? Would you be at the bottom? Where would you put yourself on the who makes the cut chart? You know, the truth of Scripture is nobody lives a life good enough to make the cut. Did you know that that's what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches there is, no, there is no chart that your life is good enough. Mother Teresa is below the line. Hitler is below the line. Pastor Jeff, sadly, his life is below the line of who makes the cut of heaven. We're all on the lower side. That's our first point, fill in the blank this morning. God's grace is not measured by our standards. We have this bad habit and we line up our good deeds and we're displaying them for God. We're putting them on display for people and we hope that we can live a clean enough life. We hope that we can volunteer enough, that we're kind enough, that we attend church. We hope that equals heaven. But God doesn't use the same rulers that we do. And the disciples start questioning Jesus because he throws this at them. And they realize that he's talking about a brand new way to measure. He's saying you can't look at the outward expression in people's lives and you can't look at the way that you think God has blessed them and think, well, they're a good person and they qualify for heaven. And they say, well, God, if the people we thought were your favorites can't make it, who can? And he says, many who are last will be first. See, every human being is on equal footing when it comes to his or her position with God. And that's a position of requiring grace to qualify for heaven. The good list that we have is not good enough. Here's what it says in Isaiah 64, 6. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And there's some discrepancy in that story that Jesus was saying. And he says, it's it's, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And some Bible interpreters, they thought that it referred to there was a hole in the wall of the Jewish, in, in walled cities. And in Jerusalem, there would have been this small hole that after hours, there, the gates would have been closed and locked. But if you came up to the city, you could have passed through this eye of the needle, sometimes it was called, because it was just enough for a person to squeak in. But a camel carrying all these loads of goods and things, 
the camel couldn't have passed through unless they, they thought, unless you stripped the camel down of everything it was carrying, maybe the camel could pass through. But if we look at that teaching, that doesn't line up with what Jesus is saying. And in fact, in many Eastern philosophers, in, 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 in their teaching, they use this description of the eye of a needle and a large animal. Some of them said an elephant, some of them said a camel, but they described it not as something that was difficult. They described it as something that was impossible. And that fits so much better with what Jesus is teaching. It's not hard to get to heaven on our own. It's impossible to get to heaven without his grace. Camels don't fit into needles. And you and I don't measure up to the perfection required for heaven. Leslie, you read this for us this morning. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus intentionally used his time on earth to go and talk with people whose lives completely deserve judgment, and he offered them grace. If you know the Bible well, there was the same grace that was offered to his closest followers. He went to a prostitute and said, has nobody condemned you? Then neither do I. Just go and don't sin anymore. I don't condemn you. I offer you grace. There was the thief who was on a cross that was dying the same death he did, and he looked at him and said, because you've asked for my help, Today you will be in heaven. He looked at Saul, who was a murderer. He killed people. He killed Christians. He was working against the church, and he met him, and he offered him grace and said, now go and live your life differently. The same grace that's offered to you and I was offered to the disciples, was offered to people whose lives we would think would never measure up. God's grace is warranted for people that we think live righteous lives, and God's grace is warranted for people who live low lives and sinful lives. We're all lowly and sinful and we all require grace. And heaven has a very short measuring tape and we saw on that scale, nobody makes it. We're all below that line. And the mission of Jesus was to come and make it possible for us to be able to go to heaven with him. And it's not how I live, but it's what I believe that he's measuring. It's not what, how you live, it's how you accept his grace. That's what he's measuring this morning. And we can't look around and accurately measure what other people believe, but we line up people from first to last, from top to bottom, and we make this imaginary heaven cutoff line. And Jesus says, you know what? Those who are last might be first. Second thought is this this morning, that God's grace isn't merited by our service. So look how Peter responds in verse 27. He says, Jesus... We left everything to follow you. And at the very least, Jesus, shouldn't we be rewarded with something more because of how diligently we serve? We're living the life that is best we can for you. Shouldn't we be given something extra? Have you ever had this discussion with God? Have you, have you ever said, God, I give up sleeping in every Sunday morning to help set up a church. What do I, what do I earn for that? What, what, what do I earn because I volunteer? God, I couldn't afford the car that I wanted or I couldn't even afford to fix my car because I've been tithing. God, I volunteer, I live right, and then, and then this happens. This sickness, this job loss, this hardship that seems undeserved. Lord, I live a righteous life. I live a faithful life. How come this is happening? Isn't your grace merited by what I do and how I serve? See, we have this skewed idea of what God's blessing is, don't we? When we say, God bless me, or the Lord has blessed me, we usually mean we get something that we wanted, right? (laughs) God blessed me with this car. He blessed me with this job. He blessed me with this opportunity. And that theology only works in an affluent society or with people whose lives are going well. God bless me with something material good. 
But if we go to the Sermon on the Mount, who does God, Jesus, say that the blessed were? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who mourn. Not blessed are those who got the job promotion. (laughs) Blessed are those who just got a second house. People who were in dire straits were blessed because their hope was in God's spirit and in God's kingdom, not in what they could physically gain and touch and was tangible on earth. And if God's blessing equaled life comforts, that would mean he's more pleased and he's blessing the developed world more than he is other nations that are still in developing nations. And in many cases, you know, we find that a more pure faith exists in the lives of people that lack personal comfort. And God's true blessing resides where there's brokenness more than when we're self-sufficient. Have you, have you ever noticed that? When you're in dire straits, you actually experience God's presence to a greater degree. And our physical comfort actually requires us to work harder to remind ourselves that we need God's blessing. If, if we can provide for ourselves today, we have to floor ourselves and go, God, none of this matters. I need you. My service doesn't matter. My life doesn't matter. My material blessing doesn't matter. My material wealth doesn't matter. I need your grace and your blessing this morning. Look what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, And it's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And Lord, forgive us for the times when we get caught thinking that our good works should mean that we get a material blessing or we should get a spiritual blessing because we serve at a greater level. Service has nothing to do with an immediate payoff. It's simply adopting a lifestyle of if Jesus laid down his life for me, I too lay down my life for him. And for those of you who serve in and amongst the church, you know what happens when you see that planning center request, right? You get an email. They, they, some of you are laughing right now because you know. If, if, you, if you don't know, if you serve in the church, we have this program that it, 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 it kind of manages every volunteer from setup to kids' ministries to worship team. And, and you, get a, you get a request and it comes to your inbox and it says, you have been scheduled for July the 12th. And you get this message on July the 1st and you go, Oh, I don't know that I want to. I don't want to open that. Just I, I didn't. I just serve last week. Why would I be? Why would they be asking me again? And, and just so you know, even if my name's on there, it doesn't mean that we've sent the email. Somebody, there's a there's there's different people that send those emails, so you can get mad at all of us, okay? But you have there's this guilty feeling of if I say no, am I letting a person down? Am I letting God down? Am am is am I not as spiritual because? You know, I said I could serve once a month, but now I've been scheduled three times a month. We have these thoughts, right? And it's all from a little email, and we get into this big spiritual debate because should we be serving? Okay, here's the carte blanche. It's okay to say no. Just click reject. Don't just leave it sitting in your inbox. Just click, say, reject, and you can say, I'm going to be at the cottage, or I don't feel like doing it this week. Whatever you want to say, you can reject it. Just let us know. But nobody should be forced into volunteering. You know why? That's not... That's not what God required of us to, to, to honor him. He said, I'm giving you the grace. You don't merit the grace by your service. He laid down his life for us. So two, we should start to lay down our lives for him, but that's not how we earn God's favor. Look what Luke 17 and 10 says. In the same way, you should ob- ob- in the same way when you obey me, you should say, we're unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. We don't serve to earn God's favor. We serve just because that's who he's, call, who he's called us to be. Service is the outflow of a submitted life. It's not a way to earn brownie points. 
with Jesus. And there's this great little story that takes place in Matthew 20. And James and John, they're the sons of thunder. We studied them this past fall when we were doing this story. And their mom comes asking Jesus about, could James and John be number two and number three when Jesus becomes king? They were still thinking Jesus would be the earthly king in Israel. And Jesus looks at her and says, you have no idea what you're asking. That's in, if your Bible's still open, you can flip through it later. It's just Matthew 20, the chapter afterwards. He says, the blessing on my kingdom is a difficult course of action. The blessing of God on earth, it rests on those who are humbled. It rests on those who are broken, those who are meek. And Jesus and the 11 other disciples, they lost their lives by standing firm for the message of God's truth. They became social pariahs. And they understood what Jesus meant with many who are last here will be first in heaven. Now, I'm not sure what your kids are like, but when Hope has done something wrong, I'll find her upstairs cleaning her room quite often. Anybody, you find this? When they've done something wrong, they're up trying to make it better. And they're, like, they're like, I'm going to clean my room. And they'll come downstairs, Dad, I clean my room. And it's like, I know you're upset, so I went and did something to make it better. I, 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 made it, I made it right so you would be less upset. And that often works, right? We don't lose that habit as kids into adulthood. We're no different. If you miss an assignment at work, you're going to be early for work tomorrow, aren't you? <laughs> you're going to be right there. And, and you're not going to leave until you see the boss leave so the boss knows that you stayed late because you're trying to make up for what you've done, right? It's the paradox of the kingdom. His hard work for us, and our acceptance of his grace is all that matters. When we sin, there's nothing more that we can do to earn his favor other than say, Lord, forgive me, and I accept your grace. Which we get to our landing point this morning. God's grace mystifies our sense of equity. It's the difference between equity and equality. We want life to be equitable, right? If we work longer, if we do a better job, we, should, we feel we should get more important payoff. We should get a better payoff. If we're, if we're a harder worker, we should be paid more, right? We have this sense of equity that we feel needs to be met. And it's the reason why we've seen lots of societies that they were founded on this kind of communist ideal where if we all just work hard and we all would be reimbursed equally, it'll all be good. Humans don't seem to work that way. When we remove motivation or we, we, we try and create this tier that some people will work harder, some people will have a higher skill, and we have this sense inside of us that says those people should be reimbursed to a greater degree. We don't, we're not equal, but we accept equity. So when Jesus says in Matthew 19 and 30, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first, it messes with us. It's not fair. Think about that. It's not fair that people who should be last get there first. That's not fair. Now, if you flip ahead one chapter again to Matthew 20, here's this parable of the workers, and here's where he tries to demonstrate this for us. And, and as we were studying it this week, Pastor Doug was kind of leading our preaching team through it. And he said, sometimes we misinterpret this parable. Look at this, the parable of the workers, Matthew 21 to 16. There was, there was a landowner and he needed work done on his field. So he went out at nine o'clock and he went to the marketplace and he hired a bunch of people and said, I need you to work on my, on my field. 
And then he realized that he needed more workers at noon. So he went back and he got workers at noon and it was getting later in the day and the work wasn't done. So he went out at three and he hired more workers again. And then even at five o'clock, the landowner was walking around and he saw people there who were there at five and he said, have you been hired yet today? You haven't had any work? And they said, no. So he said, let me come, let, let me hire you. You can come work for the last hour of the day. And then at six o'clock when it came time to pay, each worker received an equal one day's pay. And the people who were hired at nine, they were outraged. They were assuming that it should be equitable, not equal, because that's the way humans work, right? They feel, if I work nine to six, I should be paid for nine to six. And the person that worked five to six, they should be paid, but just for five to six. We would all be mad, wouldn't we? Some of you work with people who only work one hour a day, right? Like you see them at their desk, they, they wander around, they're not doing anything. And, and you feel, how do they bring in a full paycheck when I work? I'm here at seven in the morning and I stay late. It bothers us, doesn't it? But the landowner's response is key to understanding God's kingdom. He said, he looks at the people who were hired first and he felt, and they felt that they deserved more privilege Look what he says to them. He says, take your wage and go. Now here's the word, that's the word we studied. Take your wage and go. This go doesn't mean now take your money and go on your merry way and you're still in, and you're still one of my employees. This word was take your money and go and be gone from me. This story was about heaven. He said, if you're looking for equal payoff, you're not part of my kingdom. Or if, if, sorry, if you're looking for equitable payoff, that's not the way my kingdom works. My kingdom works on equality. And it doesn't matter if you've served longer, if you serve better, if you serve more. In my kingdom, if you don't accept the workers that came in at nine, at noon, at three and five, then go and be off. You've got your earthly payoff, but there's no heavenly payoff. And if we look at the parallel text to this, it's in Luke 13 when Jesus is talking about many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. He doesn't use this same story. He uses another story. And it's what, what, what happens is there's people that come to the door and we say that the, the, the homeowner slammed the door on the people who wanted to be first and felt they deserved to be first and they were kept out of the house. This is a message. This is a teaching about God's kingdom. And he says it's not about equity. It's about equality, that we're all the same. We're all level and we all require God's grace. And we can say things like, I was in church three or four Sundays a month. That's more than most people. I gave a lot in the offering. God's going to be happy with me. I volunteer in not just one place. I volunteer in two places. My life, if I was to measure up against somebody else, is better than his or her life. It's not about equity. It's about equality. Did you accept the grace of Jesus and a belief that he was God's son and that your life falls short on that who makes the cut scale, and that you need forgiveness. That's the only investment and payoff that matters when it comes to our faith. The call is for everyone, but God's elect are those who say yes. And it doesn't matter when you say yes. Some of you are here in church, and you said yes as a child. 50, 60 years ago, you said yes to Jesus, and you've been following him and you've been working just like those workers in the field for a long time, you're welcomed into God's kingdom by his grace when you stay there. Some of you are here this morning, and maybe you've never said yes, and maybe you feel your life doesn't measure up. The beautiful message of this, 
this morning is that it doesn't matter. All that matters this morning is that you understand your life doesn't measure up and you're ready to say yes today. It's a foundational principle of the gospel and a paradox that we need to understand that those who felt they were first, they may be last because it's not their life that gets them there. It's just the grace of Jesus. And those who felt like I would be last into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, I welcome you in first if you accept my gift to you this morning. We're all on equal ground. And so I don't know what it is for you this morning, whether it's just a reminder to lay down all the things that you bring to Christ and say, God, that it doesn't matter. It's just, it's just I'm going to receive your gift again this morning. I, I pray that, that this paradox just encourages your heart, those of us who have been following God for some time, just to be reminded that every morning wake up and say, Lord, thank you that you lay down your life for me. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you've done that for me. And there may be people here this morning that you needed to hear this this morning because you're feeling a little bit guilty coming to church because your life doesn't measure up. The message is just this, that none of our lives measure up. And you have an opportunity to receive his grace this morning. Heather's going to lead us and Suzanne's going to lead us in a short course. And I'm going to come back and pray. And we'll kind of pray together and make a commitment to offering God's grace. But just consider what the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God may be saying to you as we sing this chorus together. God, I pray for us all here this morning. We stand equal at your feet. We believe that you're here. Your, your word says that when a few people get together under your name, you're, you're with us. So we claim that promise this morning. And God, we say we don't measure up. But thank you for loving us enough to pay the price for our sins, Lord. And I thank you that your word encourages us like this. And we get together to be encouraged and to be reminded of the truth that's in your word. And this morning, I pray for every heart, Lord, whether it's someone that's believing this and understanding this for the first time, whether, like we had talked before, it's been years of this, Lord, I pray that we all come back to that beginning point right now, and we just say, thank you, Jesus. And we will wake up every day this week saying, thank you for the grace that you've shown us, for the, for the gift that you've given us to be called your sons and daughters. When we sing, remember your people and remember your children, that's us, Lord. Remember us every day, every moment so that we'd be so close to you. We'd always have your spirit with us. So regardless of what we go through, through difficult times, through good times, that's not your blessing. Your blessing is the spirit of God resident inside us that will call us to heaven one day. That's your blessing. That's your grace. And we thank you for that, Lord. So God, we ask that all week long we live in this truth. We live in this knowledge not just all week, all of our lives, this, would, this promise, this reminder would carry us through, Lord, knowing that one day we would be with you in heaven, in your kingdom, face to face. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to be together this morning. We ask everything in your name. Amen. Amen.